This is now God's holy, inspired, infallible, and inerrant word from Hebrews chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met with Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also the king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. And so ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, this is your word, and this, uh, your, even your word testifies that some things are difficult for us to understand. We pray uh, that you would give us insight and illumination as we study this part of your word. Would you help uh, give, me, give me the words that are true words uh, to help explain this? I pray that you would help us to have receptive hearts and open ears to hear your word, and would you instruct us in the way we ought to go that we might glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The, excuse me, the story of Emmaus Road of the Emmaus Road journey at the end of the book of Luke is perhaps one of the most important stories in all of Scripture to help us have a proper understanding of how to interpret God's Word. The story happens after the resurrection of Jesus, and there are two disciples of Jesus uh, who are on a journey from Jerusalem to the town of Emmaus. And they do not know that Jesus has been raised from the dead. They do know that Jesus had died. And they're disappointed and discouraged. And on this journey, Jesus appears to them, but they don't recognize him. And as they begin to talk, these two disciples tell Jesus all that has happened in Jerusalem. And they say, we had hoped that he would be the one who would redeem Israel. At that point, Jesus begins to speak, and he points them to the only scripture that they had at that particular time, the scriptures of the Old Testament, and he says to them, but was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer and then enter into his glory? And then Luke tells us that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's an important story for us because God tells us that all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is declaring 
the glory of God's plan of salvation in Christ Jesus. All of Scripture is proclaiming Christ, pointing to Christ. And when we, if we read through the book of Genesis, this character of Melchizedek, as Elder Bell said, is uh, an obscure character. He seems like this tiny background character that we get almost no exposure to whatsoever. In Genesis, you see all these big names, Adam and Noah, and then you have the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and even end with Joseph and that wonderful story. But in all those 50 chapters of the book of Genesis, Melchizedek shows up in three verses, the three verses that Elder Bell just read. And in the entire Old Testament, all 39 books, there's only that reference in Genesis, and then one verse in a psalm that we've, we've looked at earlier in the book of Hebrews, Psalm 110, where the psalmist declares on behalf of God, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever of the order of Melchizedek. So in all of the Old Testament, there are four verses referring to this Melchizedek. He's quite literally a tiny needle in a stack of needles in all of the biblical history. And yet, as an insignificant as the character may seem, he is a major character to the author of the book of Hebrews. In fact, the book of Hebrews, Melchizedek is referred to in three chapters, and almost this entire chapter 7 is dedicated to this man, Melchizedek, and his importance. And he has a small cameo in the Old Testament, and yet... He has profound significance in the story of redemptive history because it is in the person of Melchizedek that we see the greatness of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. But his obscurity raises some questions. Why why is the author of Hebrews talking about Melchizedek here? What does he have to do with Christ And the answer to that question we will see over the next couple weeks as we look through all of chapter 7. But today, what we need to see is that the greatness of the priesthood of Jesus Christ is found in its similarities with the greatness of the priesthood of Melchizedek. It's a a comparison of similarity. Now, uh, uh, high school geometry is... uh, of all math classes you might take in high school, is very different from all the rest. Um, you know, you spend most of your time learning how to do equations and solving problems with equations, and then all of a sudden you get to high school geometry, and it's like, how is this math? You spend all your time proving logically, learning how to do logical proofs to go from uh, one assertion to a final point. And uh, the passage today from Hebrews almost feels like a geometrical proof trying to prove the greatness of uh, the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And even all of Hebrews chapter 7 feels like the author is trying to do this multi-part proof to give us a sense of the wonder and the glory of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. So we'll see that as we look today uh, with 
as we focus on Melchizedek and under two simple headings. Uh, one, uh, his similarity to Jesus. And the second, his superiority to the Levites or the Levitical priesthood. The similarity to Jesus and the superiority. Um, so he begins by talking about the similarity between Melchizedek and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he gives us five different aspects where he is similar to the Lord Jesus Christ. But in, actually, in all of these cases, Jesus is greater even than Melchizedek. The first um, similarity is in uh, his offices, the offices of Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Melchizedek is both king and priest. It says, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. So he's both king and priest. Now that passage in Genesis chapter 14 is given in Genesis, which is before Exodus. And in Exodus, God gave his law. And after the giving of the law, these offices, which we talk about, prophet, priest, and king, were all held by different individuals. But not so with Melchizedek. Melchizedek is both a king and a priest, which is unique for Old Testament individuals. And so he is like Jesus in that regard. Melchizedek is both a, one who reigns and one who ministers as a priest. And as we've seen throughout the book of Hebrews, Jesus is both king, who has been exalted to God's right hand, but now he's making the case that he is a priest, a great high priest, the greatest high priest. But Jesus is even greater because the writer of Hebrews has told us that he is also the greatest prophet. He is the greatest word. God spoke to us long ago in many different ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. And so he is prophet, priest, and king. So Melchizedek is like Jesus in his offices. Secondly, he's like Jesus in his names. Um, author says that this Melchizedek, king of Salem, um, he says he's first in verse 2, he's first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he's also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. So names in the Old Testament are very important. And Melchizedek's name, Melchizedek, is a compound Hebrew word between Melek, which means king, and Zedek, which means righteousness. So the author says that by translation of his name, his name means king of righteousness. But also he is king of Salem. Now Salem, we read that in our call to worship that God speaks out of Salem. Salem's usually identified with Jerusalem. As you'll see the same ending. The author here doesn't make that type of connection, but there, that is often made. But Salem has the same Hebrew root as the word shalom, which I'm sure you know means peace. And so he is saying he is king of Salem, that is king of peace. So he has those names. And those names are absolutely fitting for the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus Christ is our king of righteousness, perfectly righteous, perfectly just, who came to give us as a gift his 
righteousness. He perfectly obeyed God's law, and so he was perfectly righteous, and he will perfectly meet God's justice. But he's also the king of peace. Not only was he the prince of peace, but he came to give us peace. Apostle Paul says that um, he himself is our peace. And because of him, we have peace with God because we have been justified by faith. So he is most certainly our king of righteousness and our king of peace. But third, he's like, Melchizedek is like Jesus because of his appointment, the fact that he is appointed as a priest. Now, this one's a little harder to see, but it says, um, verse 3, he is without father or mother or genealogy. Now, this is a, a reference in contrast to the main priests that we see in the Old Testament, the Levitical priesthood. The Levitical priests were appointed um, by God to come from Aaron, Aaron, Moses' brother. All of his sons would become high priests, and all of the Levites were to become uh, part of the Levitical priesthood. And they had to um, verify their lineage to Aaron and their uh, being part of the Levitical family. But what our author says is that Melchizedek has, is without father or mother or genealogy. Now, he doesn't mean that in an absolute sense. It doesn't mean that he was some kind of spontaneous creation of God. This wasn't some um, pre-incarnate Christ figure. This is, Melchizedek was a man. There are extra biblical references to the fact that Melchizedek most likely came from the line of Shem, who was Noah's son. But again, the author of Hebrews isn't concerned about that. What he is talking about is in the context of God's revealed will, in the story of Genesis, Melchizedek has no father or mother or genealogy. We, we read the story. Um, Melchizedek just pops into the scene and he departs just as quickly. Genealogies are a big part of the Old Testament showing the line of God's people. But Melchizedek, though he is a priest of God Most High, has no genealogy. He, is simply, he seems to be simply appointed as a priest of God's people. And the same is true for Jesus Christ. Our author will make that case a little bit further in chapter 7, that he uh, is descended from Judah, not from the tribe of Levi. He's not from the line of Aaron, and yet God has appointed him to be priest. In fact, God has sworn with an oath, you will be a priest. You are a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so Melchizedek is like Jesus in their appointment, the way that they become priests. Fourth, um, Melchizedek is like Jesus in his permanence, his permanence or his continuing, his etern eternality as a priest. In verse 3, he also says that Melchizedek has neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Again, this is not talking about in an absolute sense as though Melchizedek never was born or never died. This is talking about 
from the perspective, the literary perspective of the story. Melchizedek is, we have no record of his birth. We have no record of his death. He appears on the scene and leaves. And when he leaves, he's still alive. And he's still a priest. So from the context of the story, it appears as though he continues as a priest forever. Which makes it kind of obscure. This is like the Lord Jesus, of course. Whereas the Melchizedek appeared to have no beginning or no end. And did from a literary perspective. While Jesus had a birth, the Son of God had no beginning. He is the eternal Son of God. And while Jesus died, he is raised and is alive forevermore. And he is seated at the God's right hand and will be forever and ever. And while Melchizedek resembles the Son of God, Melchizedek resembles him, Jesus is the Son of God and will, without qualification, be a priest forever. So that's the fourth. The fifth way that they resemble is in their preeminence. Melchizedek is the very first priest ever mentioned in God's word. The very first time where a blessing of a priest is given. The very first time that tithes are received in scripture. He is preeminent by being the first. But Jesus is preeminent because he is the very first priest to enter into God's presence to minister face to face on account of his own righteousness. He is preeminent because he is entered by the sacrifice of himself and his own purity. And he is preeminent because he will be a priest forever. So those five ways Melchizedek is similar to Jesus, but then the author goes on to explain to us how Melchizedek is greater than the Levites. And he starts off by saying, see how great this man was. Verse 4, see how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. He wants us to see how great Melchizedek was as a priest. And he gives us two ways. And they deal with his ministry. His ministry of blessing and his ministry of receiving tithes. First, he says in verse 1 that as Abraham met Melchizedek, Melchizedek blessed him. He gave the blessing. And we use that term kind of informally, blessing. What we have to understand is that when God had his people bless his people, when he had his leaders bless his people, it wasn't simply a well-wish It was imparting a gift of God upon his people. The greatest blessing which God commanded Aaron and his sons to give is recorded in Numbers chapter 6. That blessing that you know well that begins, The Lord Lord bless you and keep you. And that was not merely a well-wish to say, you know, God, God thinks good things about you. But he was imparting on behalf of God, God's blessing to his people. And coincidentally, when we do a benediction at the end of worship, when a minister of 
the gospel proclaims the blessing. It is not merely a, a nice way to end the worship service. It is God himself imparting his blessing upon you. And so it is a great gift. And that is what Melchizedek does for Abraham. And our author says that in verse 7, he says, it's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So when what he's saying is that when God has appointed someone to give that blessing, it is from a position of authority to, from the superior to the inferior, from a position of authority. And why that's important is because it is Abraham who is receiving this blessing. Abraham. Um, and verse 4 calls him Abraham the patriarch. Abraham the patriarch. Now Abraham was one of the patriarchs, but the reason why he's called the patriarch is because he was the father of all the patriarchs. He was the one to whom God gave his covenantal promises. And in the New Testament, the apostle Paul says that Abraham is even the father of all who believe. In Christ Jesus, we have received the blessings that God promised to Abraham. And so if Melchizedek is blessing Abraham, who is acting as a representative head of the patriarchs, and in fact of all of God's people, then Melchizedek is great in this ministry. He is blessing. Even We might even see that God is giving, imparting his covenantal blessings that he has promised to Abraham through the blessing of Melchizedek. So there's the ministry of blessing, but then there's also this ministry of tithes. Our, uh, Genesis 14 says that Abraham gave a tenth of all that he had, all the spoils of war from this battle, gave it to Melchizedek. Melchizedek received it. What our text goes on to say is that uh, this, was, this was before the law was given, a law of that there, the people of God would give tithes. The law would come later, and God would command the Levites to receive the tithes. And he would, they would receive the tithes from God's people. And as they received the tithes from God's people, God said, this is your portion, Levites. That would be how they survived. That's, that was their provision for God's people. But this was well before this. And Abraham, without any particular law, is tithing these things to Melchizedek. But then he... He goes on to say um, that um, one might even say, this is verse 9, one might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, that may seem weird to us in our modern mind, but in a biblical concept Scripture speaks as though one's descendants are still in a person's loins before they are uh, born. And so what um, in Genesis 25, there's an example. Um, Jacob and Esau are still in their mother's womb. And God says 
there are two nations in your womb. And the, the younger will rule over, the, the older will serve the younger. That's one example. Another uh, prime example in Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul tells us that when Adam sinned, he sinned on behalf of all mankind because all mankind was in him in that fall. And here, the, the writer says that Levi was still in Abraham's loins, and his logic is that Levi's the one who is commanded to receive the tithes from God's people. But Melchizedek, who has no, he's not part of this genealogy, he's receiving the tithes from Levi through Abraham. Because that's how Levi is tithing, Melchizedek must be greater because he is receiving the tithes from Levi himself. And so, Melchizedek is greater than Levi, both in his blessing, which by the same argument, we could say that Levi was blessed through Abraham, just as he received the tithes through Abraham. And so, if we use the transitive property of mathematics, where if A is greater than B and B is greater than C, if Melchizedek is greater than the Levites, and Jesus is like Melchizedek, or even greater than Melchizedek, then logically, Jesus must be greater than the Levites. So what, what are we to take from that? I think there's um, three things that we can see by way of application from this passage. The first is that we need to recognize that your high priest was appointed by God himself. Jesus Christ was appointed a high priest. He was declared a priest by God after the order of Melchizedek. It wasn't on the base of, basis of being part of a family lineage or being part of the law that he just so happened to end up a high priest. God himself chose and approved him to be a high priest. So he was appointed as a priest, but he was also fully obedient. So he was fully worthy to serve as a priest. And in so doing, he became our perfect representative. Galatians 3 says this. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. So because Christ was appointed as our priest, because he offered himself as a sacrifice, because he accepted that curse, he is now the means by which you receive that blessing of Abraham. The promised covenantal blessings which God promises to his people are ours because we have an appointed and worthy high priest. Don't think for a moment that your relationship to God comes in any other way than, than through Christ Jesus. 
You need a high priest to make you fit to worship him. You need a high priest in order to receive those blessings from our God. And you have it in Jesus Christ. He has become our worthy high priest. And to that point, because he has become our worthy high priest, and now he has been ascended into God's right hand, and he sits there in God's presence, one of the priestly blessings that he is engaged in is praying for you and for me. He has perfect access to our Heavenly Father, to the Almighty God. God calls himself in Scripture a God who hears. He shows himself to be a God who responds to prayer, and you have a high priest who is praying for you, whom God has chosen to represent you. And he's perfect. And so he's perfectly praying for you. And in fact, our prayers are only permissible because we come in Jesus' name. So he makes those intercessory blessings ours. But secondly, um, because we have an appointed high priest, and because of what Jesus has done, he has made us fit for worship. He has made us fit for worship. We read it in the assurance of pardon. We see it in his name. But God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. We have no claim to come into God's presence to worship him unless we are fit to worship him, unless we are clothed with the proper garments for worship. By ourselves, our righteousness is filthy rags. But in Christ Jesus, he has clothed us with his beautiful priestly garments that we might be white and spotless and pure and in his presence. And that's wonderful. Abraham offered tithes on behalf of his people. But the Lord Jesus Christ didn't offer just a tithe. He offered himself as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice. He offered himself in place of you as a perfect sacrifice to pay the penalty for your sin. And in that sacrifice, God pardoned your sin and he accepts you as righteous in his sight. Not because of any righteousness of your own, but only because of the imputed righteousness of Christ. God counting it to you. And so now you are clothed with his righteousness and made fit for worship. And that's wonderful news because apart from worship, worshiping God and bowing before him, we have no share in salvation. God has, is seeking for worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. And in Christ Jesus, we can do just that. And what's more, not only is he our king of righteousness, but he is our king of peace. As Paul says, he himself is our peace. Christ is our peace. He hasn't just declared peace or imparted peace to us. He is our peace. And in worship, that's what this Lord's Supper meal is. It's a celebration of the fact that since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God. This is a fellowship meal a reminder that God no longer holds against us the sins which we have committed, 
have been fully paid for by our high priest, Jesus Christ. So we need to realize that we have a glorious and appointed high priest. But secondly, if or since Christ has been appointed as our high priest, and since, as Paul says in Ephesians, he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight and has made us part of Christ. What that means is that you and I, as members of Christ, have been chosen to be priests. We have been given a priestly office after the order of Melchizedek in Christ Jesus. And Peter says this in his letter. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. A royal priesthood. Think about that. Royal, pointing to the kingly nature of Christ. A royal priesthood, pointing to the priestly nature. So like Melchizedek, we are royal priests, royal priesthood. So we're like Melchizedek, but we're more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. We're members of his royal family, If we endure, we will reign with him, but we are also members of his priestly line. And what that means is we have priestly obligations and priestly opportunities. So when it comes to prayer, we have been granted access to pray to the Almighty God, to give him thanks and praise, to pray for one another. And he hears our prayers because of our because of Christ. And so when your brothers and sisters pray for you, know that God hears your prayers. But it also means that we have the opportunity to bless others. And that blessing is, the sum and substance of that blessing that we impart is Jesus Christ. We've been given the right to impart that blessing to other people through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, we have salvation from our sins. And we have the fullness of his blessings that he has promised to us. And so if you know Jesus Christ, then these blessings are yours. And you have the right to impart those blessings to others. Because he has made you fit for that. And last, um, the, the final thing is... Um, we have to understand that this priest that we have is an eternal priest. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. These blessings that we have in Christ Jesus are ours forever. Melchizedek had the appearance of a a perpetual priesthood, but Christ is a priesthood forever. We have access to our God forever and ever. His blessings are ours forever forever and ever. Our worship will be acceptable forever and ever. And so we can rest in that and glory in that, but that will never change because we have a priest forever and ever. And so, beloved, we ought to worship. We must worship with confidence because we know that we have been accepted into his presence because we have an appointed high priest who welcomes us 
we should worship with joy because God delights in our worship. He has lavished his grace on us in his son, Jesus Christ. And we need to rest in his love because these promises, these blessings are ours forever and ever. We get to delight in that forever and ever. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this great truth that is ours, that we have a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand and to meditate on the beauty of this truth, that we might serve you as we ought. We thank you that you have made us priests. Help us to serve with our priestly duties, with joy and vigor and truth. And would you be glorified through your, by yourself in these things. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Beloved, our hymn